Well, it is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass uh, compass and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of content and go on our way with the thought, behold, I'm wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. So spoke the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon back in 1855, and I think it might have been his first sermon. Our topic over this holiday break uh, is humility, and uh, if you were here last week, hopefully you'll, you'll remember our starting point was a sentence that appears three times in the scriptures. It's the sentence, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we recognised last week that given the obvious importance of humility and the terror of having God oppose you if you are proud, we want to pursue humility. And so last time we pondered the humility of Jesus together, and tonight we ponder our humility before God. And the pathway to deep, profound humility is actually well marked out, according to Spurgeon. It's not hidden. Profound, deep humility lies at the end of a pathway of contemplation of the holiness of God. And so that's really our task tonight. It's a path that's easily found, but it's not easily travelled down, especially not for instinctively proud people like you and me. So we'll need God's help. We'll need his word and we'll need his spirit. So how about we pray before we contemplate the holiness of God. Heavenly Father, we uh, seek tonight, Father, to tread on uh, definitely holy ground. And we definitely need your help. Father, as we think about humility and humility, especially before you, we want to confess straight up that we are proud people and that this topic is a difficult one for us. And so please, Father, you promise to work within us by your word and your spirit to change us and shape us. And we want you, Father, to take away our pride and we want you to make us humble people. And we pray that you would do that work tonight, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we think about a right humility before God, I thought we might use as our model tonight, really, the surprising main character in one of the stories Jesus told. If you have a look on the outline uh, on the inside of the bulletin, you might, um, you might be fearful. <laughs> but uh, we are going to look at lots of the Bible tonight. Um, I'm going to read it as we go through. You don't have to look up everything, but they're really there for you to have a look at later. But I think maybe if you wanted a base camp really in the Bible, if you want to open up with me to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, we find there really a humility case study. So give you a chance to look it up, Luke 18 and verse 9. 
story there. In verse 9, Luke tells us that it's a story that Jesus told to some people who were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everybody else. In other words, Jesus told this story to people who were firstly proud towards God and secondly proud towards other people. And the story went like this. Pick it up from verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a famous story of Jesus. It's in fact the story we used at our Food for Thought dinner a couple of weeks back, you'll remember, if you were there. And Jesus uses the tax collector in this story as really an example of right humility before God. The sort of humility, hopefully, that we desire. And so I thought we might uh, use him as our sort of case study. We're going to bounce around the Bible, but we'll keep on returning to this story that Jesus told. And the first thing to notice is that the tax collector recognised that it was God that he had to deal with and that God is holy. In other words, God is utterly other than anything else or anyone else that we might ever have to deal with. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 that Michelle just read for us, Isaiah 40 may well have been the bit of the Bible the tax collector could have been reading that morning before he went to the temple. Notice as we're reading through that passage what a a massive portrayal of the greatness, the holiness of God is contained in Isaiah chapter 40. In the middle of that chapter that, uh, that Michelle read for us, there's a question in verse 25. It's this, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? It's a massive question. Who indeed could be compared to God? Who indeed could possibly be his equal? The Lord is the maker and sustainer of heaven and earth. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read that he is the one who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. This is the one who weighs mountains. This is the one who marked off the entire universe with the span of his hand. He created the heavens. He called out the stars one by one, each by their name. This is the Holy One who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, utterly, absolutely sovereign. Princes, rulers, earthly kingdoms, superpowers. He can bring them to nothing. He can blow them away like chaff. Compared to the Lord God, the nations are but nothing. And we people of the world are like grasshoppers to him. He is the everlasting God, remember. He is the creator of everything. No one can fathom his understanding. No one could possibly teach him anything. He, in fact, is the source of all knowledge and all wisdom. From him and through him and to him 
are all things. Not some things, all things. This is the God who is utterly and absolutely sovereign in everything. This is the God who works out every single thing that happens. Every single thing that happens, happens in exact conformity with the purpose of his will. Nothing takes this God by surprise. He is the sovereign ruler of his creation. He is the holy one. He is incomparable. He is without equal. He is holy. And you know what? The prophet Isaiah, he knew that better than most probably. For he had seen the Lord. Back in chapter 6 of Isaiah's prophecy, he records it. Let me read it for you. You can have a look at it later. Isaiah wrote this. I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke." That's a portrait of God. That's a vision of God. It's a massive picture. The temple in Isaiah's day was massive, and yet just the train of the temp of the robe of the Lord filled the temple. Imagine it shaking. Friends, too often our picture of God is way, way too small. Tragically, pathetically, disastrously too small. Too often we delude ourselves with some domesticated version of God who is tame, who is persuadable, who is containable, who is ignorable. We are fools and we need to place ourselves there with Isaiah, shaking. Or perhaps we need to find ourselves with Job in the final chapters of his book, with the Lord answering the impertinence of Job out of a storm. Where were you, Job? When I laid the earth's foundations, have you ever given orders to the morning? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Does the hawk take flight, Job? Does it take flight by your wisdom? Question after question fired off from within the storm by the Lord, each question sinking Job lower and lower and lower until Job finally despises himself and repents in dust and ashes. Isaiah, back in the temple, he cried with despair, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I am ruined. The tax collector in Jesus' story, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, off in a corner, beating his breast in humble sorrow. Brothers and sisters, we will never begin to learn humility until we begin and continue to meditate and ponder carefully in the scriptures the awesome holiness of the Lord God, our creator. It's no coincidence that the prophet with whom the Lord spoke face to face, Moses, it's no coincidence that he's described in the book of Numbers to be more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. For see, we are creatures, lowly, 
bound in time and place, limited in knowledge and ability. And whenever a creature meets with his creator, humility is the only right response. As Spurgeon so helpfully described, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. And we meet with God. Our minds are shaped by God as we meet with him in the scriptures with the help of his spirit. Sadly, of course, a vision of the majesty of God has largely been lost to us today. There may well be some people in this room who in the last seven days since evening church last Sunday have not even picked up their Bible and read it. And we wonder why humility seems so distant to us. We're too shallow, you see. When we pray, we rarely kneel in our prayers. We never prostrate ourselves before the Lord. And even the thought of it, I would suggest, would make us uncomfortable, a bit humiliating. We prefer to cozy up to God as our friendly mate than our fearsome maker. Worship has become reduced just to singing. We have very little reverent fear in our experience of God. And we need to regain it. We need to stand with Isaiah and with Job and reverently fear the Lord in his awesome holiness. We need to read the scriptures, especially perhaps the prophets who have such a vivid portrayal of the holiness of the Lord God. But we need to marvel and tremble at the majesty and the holiness of the Lord God, our creator. For, of course, we meet with God as even less than mere creatures, don't we? We meet with God as even less than mere creatures. We meet him as disobedient creatures. We meet him as rebellious creatures. And, of course, that was the great cause of Isaiah's despair, wasn't it? He was a man of unclean lips. He lived among a people of unclean lips. And he met the Lord God not merely as his creator, but as his judge. And so it was with the tax collector, you see. He's off in the corner there because of shame. Guilt pressed in on him. He knew that he deserved nothing from the Lord God but his fierce and furious wrath. And he beat his breast to show his self-condemnation. But that self-condemnation was nothing compared to the condemnation that was rightly his under the hand of the Lord God. And so he became a beggar. He was reduced to a beggar, a beggar for mercy from the holy judge. And he was absolutely right. Listen to a small portion of the prophet Nahum's oracle. Let me read it for you. You can look at it later. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his enemies. The Lord maintains his wrath against his foes. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? 
His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. See, friends, is that the Lord God that you believe in and you worship? Because if it isn't, you've made your God up. The Lord God is the holy judge of his creation and his creatures. He dwells in inapproachable light. He takes vengeance on his foes. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. His wrath is poured out like fire. And all those who are made to drink of the wine of the fury of God will be tormented forever. And the tax collector over there in the corner, he knew that. And Isaiah shaking in the temple, he knew that. And we must know and believe that too. We must know and believe that we are fully deserving of the Lord's vengeance and wrath and eternal condemnation. Because in ourselves, in our own nature, we're not righteous. We don't seek God. We've turned away. We have no good in us. None. No good in us. We are a people of unclean lips practicing deceit. And we must know and believe that we deserve hell for our moral and spiritual failures. Everlasting destruction is all that we deserve from God's hand. Before the holy judge, the Lord, we are exposed as worthless and unclean, stained with sin. Our very best efforts, you know, the very best stuff that we could possibly come up with to impress God, well, in his presence they are but filthy rags before his blinding purity and righteousness. And see, friends, with Job we must repent in the dust. With Isaiah we've got to cry out in despair. With the tax collectors, we must beat our breasts and beg in self-condemning sorrow. We must beg for mercy. Because you see, humility before God, that's not something extraordinary. That's not something noble. That's not something virtuous. Humility before God is simply the only right response to the reality of ourselves and our situation. To be anything other than humble before God just demonstrates a great and terrible ignorance of the way things really are. And yet, of course, that's our problem, isn't it? At the heart of our sin lies the very opposite of right humility. The heart of our sin is pride. Within our fallen core is this unwavering confidence in ourselves, a contempt for God and his rule an arrogant trust in our own goodness and our own power. And that's why it's so important, so important, to continually, deliberately be measuring ourselves and our worth before the holiness of God. Because you know what? It's so easy with all this stuff. It's so easy as long as we compare ourselves to other people. Because when we compare ourselves to other people, it's so easy to have great assurance, you see, of our inner worth and our inner righteousness. And that was exactly the mistake the Pharisee made in Jesus' story, wasn't it? Remember? You can have a look at it there if it's open in front of you. Even in his prayer to God, his prayer to God. Even then the Pharisee paraded his own worth in comparison to other people. Can you see it there? He, he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What a terribly deceived, false confidence. And we've said exactly the same thing, haven't we? Maybe not with those words. We have said exactly the same thing in our prayers, in our thoughts. We've been somewhere surrounded by people and we've thought, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I am better than them. That's the essence of sin with which we are all tainted, pride. And it is a terrible disease, you see, because it causes us to rely on ourselves and not to be humble before God because we think we don't need to be. But you see, when you come to the truth of God revealed by his spirit in the scriptures, that's like coming into the blindingly bright light of the sun itself. And all of our shortcomings then are exposed, you see. All our grounds for hope and boasting are stripped away. And what we once thought of a moment ago as righteousness is now revealed to be nothing less than wickedness. And what we once thought a moment ago as great wisdom is now revealed to be in God's presence folly. And what we thought was great power in God's presence is revealed to be just miserable weakness. And all we can see in ourself is our sin and our folly. And with the tax collector, you see, we beg for mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you know what? He does. He does. Imagine that. God has mercy on sinners. That's the astonishing promise of the gospel. God opposes the proud because we have nothing to be proud about and our pride actually makes us stand against him. But God gives grace to the humble. That's Jesus' punchline in the story, isn't it? The tax collector... The tax collector, in all his wickedness and folly and weakness and sin, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, the tax collector went home justified before God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And let me tell you, it is a fantastic grace. Because, you know, not long after telling this story, Jesus made the story possible by dying for the sins of his people and winning for them justification before God. And in the death of his son, in one staggering moment in the history of creation, the holy wrath of God and the love of God, if you like, collided in this one event. Not an event, a person. The Son, the kindness and love of God is revealed. His mercy is revealed in the death of his Son for sinful people, the righteous for the unrighteous. Not for the proud, boasting in things they've done, but for the humble. Those who recognize they bring nothing to the table with God except sin and weakness and folly. It's all by faith, you see, not by works. 
It's trusting in the mercy and the power and the goodness of God because that's all I can do. I've got nothing else. Faith in the merciful promises is the shape of, of our humility before God. Faith in his merciful promises. It's coming to God with nothing in our hands, no bargaining chips. It's laying aside all pride and pretension. It's coming to God in disgrace and shame and pleading with him, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he does. Through Christ Jesus and his saving death on our behalf, even sinners like us can enjoy peace with God. God shows mercy to humble sinners. And friends, if you are here tonight and you have yet to avail yourself of this mercy, now's the time, okay? Now's the time to do it. The day of judgment fast approaches, but for now God is patient, wanting everyone to come to repentance. Now's the time to avail yourself of his rich mercy. Now is the time to acknowledge your sin and plead for forgiveness. Now is the time to humble yourself before God and trust in his merciful promises. You have to pray. It doesn't be a fancy prayer, doesn't it? It's a great thing about the tax collector. There's no fancy prayer, is it? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God did. Many of us have already done that, you know, and we rejoice because of it. In coming to God and seeking his mercy, the burden of our sin has been lifted. The fear of condemnation has been removed and we've received mercy from the kind hand of the holy God and you can too. I'd love to talk to you some more about it later if you wanted to. But you know, for those of us who have received mercy from God, humility is a struggle for us and sometimes it's a sense in which we think, oh, I can, you know, humility is necessary to enter the kingdom of God but is it really that necessary once you're in? And even as I say that, you think, no, that's ridiculous. Of course, having entered the kingdom of God that way, it's not as if anything changes, does it? We enter in humility, we enter with nothing, and we continue in humility because we continue with nothing of ourselves. It's not as if the tax collector in Jesus' story went home that day so proud that God had accepted him. For the rest of his life, he would have nothing to boast about in himself. Having been saved by faith, We continue to live by faith and we continue to live totally and absolutely dependent on the mercy of God. As he saved children, justified, forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, we remain humbled. Even the new life we live as as the saved children of God, the new things we achieve as the saved children of God, that, that, that only happens because of God's continuing, gracious, powerful work within us continues to be true that we have nothing to boast in except the Lord but what a boast it is it's a massive boast that the Lord God in his holiness would show mercy even to someone such as me that's a massive boast in the Lord of course our pride will still be a snare won't it having entered the kingdom of God our pride will still snare us As we live by faith, we'll come up against things in God's word that we won't want to do. We'll come up against things in God's word that we won't want to believe. 
inconvenient, uncomfortable, hard, seemingly costly things. And our pride will whisper to us in those times that actually we know better than God and we can go it alone at this point. But in humility, with the help of the Spirit of God, we'll say no to pride and we'll submit to the will of the sovereign Holy Lord who gives us grace. And things will happen in our life or things won't happen in our life that will leave us hurt and disappointed and even grieving. And our pride will whisper to us, so you'd be better off on your own, better off fending for yourself. God's not all that good after all. You can't really be trusted for your happiness. But in humility, we'll say no to our pride. With the help of the Spirit of, the, of God, we'll submit to the will of the sovereign, holy God who gives us grace. Who is the one that God esteems? Who's the one that God delights in? According to the Bible, the one God esteems is the one who is humble and contrite, broken and trembles at his word. And that is the shape of the Christian life. Humility from beginning to never end. Humility before God and his word. He esteems the humble. I find that last phrase interesting because it picks up a bit of a buzzword, doesn't it, in our culture when it comes to the sort of stuff we're thinking about, especially when it comes to self-assessment, esteem, or more particularly for us in our culture, self-esteem. I'm no counsellor. I have very little training in psychology, and what I'm about to say is not the only thing to say, but it does seem to me that given the choice between self-esteem and God-esteem, I'd go for God-esteem every time. I'd much prefer God to delight in me than for me to delight in myself. And I can't help thinking, you know, that the life of humility that God prescribes for his children is so liberating to broken people like you and me. It's so liberating. For you see, as someone who has been saved purely by the grace and mercy of God, I don't have to look in the mirror each morning and pretend that I'm better than I really am. I have been liberated from that. I don't have to look in the mirror each morning and sort of try to ignore my failings and my failures in order to get through the day. I've been liberated from that. I don't have to look in the mirror and sort of desperately try and accentuate the positives where I can find them so as to be able to get through the day. I have been liberated from that. As someone who has been saved by the mercy and grace of God, I can look in the mirror and recognize myself truly as a sinner, weak and foolish. And yet, by the mercy and grace of God, esteemed by him as his child, forgiven and justified, I can see in the mirror someone who is being restored into the image of Christ. I can look into the mirror and see someone in whom, by his spirit, both the Father and the Son have made their home. I can look in the mirror and I can see someone who is assured of everlasting life, both full and forever, and therefore I enjoy great confidence, 
great comfort, great security, great joy. And my failures, when they inevitably come along, they don't surprise me and they don't destroy me. For my confidence now rests outside of myself. My confidence and my hope rests in the Holy Lord, who wondrously, outrageously, mercifully heard my cry for mercy. I look in the mirror and I can boast in the Lord. God esteem seems far more desirable than self esteem. And the one God esteems is the one who is humble and broken and trembles at his word. And so, brothers and sisters, let's set ourselves the goal this week of spending some serious, lengthy, quality time pondering carefully and prayerfully the character of God revealed in the scriptures. Let's, let's come into the presence of God. I've given some suggestions of bits of the Bible you might like to look at on the outline, but don't be limited by those, boy. Humility before God is simply the right, unavoidable response to a genuine encounter with his majesty and holiness and purity and power. Let's ask God to make us humble. Let's ask God for his mercy and his grace. May our boast be only in him, the holy judge who graciously shows mercy to sinners like you and me. How about we pray? Why don't you take a moment to talk to your Heavenly Father? Heavenly Father, we beg you for mercy. Father, we are so ashamed of our arrogance. So foolish, Father. So ashamed, Father, of the times, even this day, that we've managed to ignore you, disregard you, disobey you. It's so foolish, Father. Forgive us for being proud people. And please do whatever you need to do, Father, to humble us. And even as I pray, Father, I think that's a, that's a risky thing to pray. But it's not risky, really, for we trust you and we want to be humble before you. And help us, Father, even this week to meet with you seriously and prayerfully in your scriptures and humble us, we pray. We thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus. As we thought about last time, who was willing to be humiliated for us, that we might even pray like this to you and have you hear us. That we might be your children is astonishing. And we thank you. Thank you for your patience, for your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amin.